Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. Age-Related Macular Degeneration, or AMD, is the leading cause of adult vision loss in the U.S. It affects 1 in 14 over the age of 40. When caught early, there is time to take corrective action. Ask your eye doctor to test your dark adaptation speed using the Adapt DX Pro from Maculogics. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Greg Caldwell. In this episode, we dive deep into new technology and treatment for retinal and macular disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. Next is OCT, and we talked a lot about OCT, but I, I want to talk about if somebody has those subretinal neovascular membranes that we see on OCT angiography, there's about a 15 times greater chance for those eyes to turn wet. If you could talk about that and what do you think should be done at that point? Because right now uh, they're not being treated with anti-VEGF in most cases or laser. And what should we do? Well, the, the, the two ways I'm going to answer that is, is just, and again, it's through experience, is when you see them follow more closely because you want to catch them early. And if they're starting to become exudative, then they'll eject them. So as, as soon as you start seeing a little bit of influid, they'll, they'll do uh, an anti-VEGF because that's what its indication is for. Um, so closer follow-up is, is definitely one. Now, I worked with a retinologist very closely for about five or six years and learned a lot of my, I guess, my pathophysiology skills, learning about the layers and how a lot of this works. Um, and then so there is a group from Pittsburgh that comes up to my local town that are retinologists. And I became good friends because he, you know, if I send over a maculon retinal detachment, it's usually a maculon retinal detachment. If it's exudative macular degeneration, yeah, he's, we've built up a confidence with each other from sending something over. That's usually what it is. And if it's something surgical or needs injected. So I start talking to him about these, these uh, occult non-exudative neovascular membranes. And he's like, Greg, the problem is we just don't know what to do with it. Just like you said, Carrie, it's 15, I think it's 15.2, but 15 times more likely that they're going to bleed and lead into vision loss. And so I followed that, followed them via uh, his advice. And within about, you know, four months, my first two that I was able to detect bled. And, and I had some series of follow-ups of some angiographies. And so we've come to the conclusion working with him, and I'm just going to use this as a, uh, um, as a disclaimer, you know, you can't say this is going to happen all across the United States, 
but I follow them closely. And if I can show that that net is growing pretty quickly in a rapid, maybe over about a six or eight week, maybe 10 week time period. And I talk to the patient and kind of go over everything. If the patient goes over and he sees that this membrane is growing and it's in, you know, obviously in the macula, which is a very serious place. And the, the patient is willing to take the risk of the injection, which would be maybe say endoptomitis would be your worst risk. Um, then he'll inject it on that patient. And we've been able to keep some people uh, from losing vision, at least, you know, in my opinion, you know, they haven't done any long-term studies. We know that it's 15.2 times risk, but the patients that we, we've injected, and my N is probably 16, um, and none of them have bled to this point. So I like that track record if it was my eye. So what we do, of course, I'm sure you do also we heavy duty when we see that very heavy duty in nutrition. So oh, if they're using macula health, macula health once a day, which is lutein, zeaxanthin, measles, zeaxanthin, we may use it two times a day, even three times a day, a la Michael Tolentino, who's a retina specialist. And of course, we'll follow a very strict diet uh, uh, without processed foods, something that uh, Dr. Chris Kenobi talks about, and uh, you know, I, I interviewed him about staying away from processed food and eating eating real food. So with a very very strict diet, stay away from sugar. Ala Dr. Robert Lustig, who also has been a guest on the podcast. So we work very hard as far as nutrition and diet, and I'm sure and supplements. Uh, when people have this, I'm sure you do as well. No, absolutely. Um, you know, we talk about diet, you know, we say it from the podium, but you know, you're, you're right again. And I kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, stay out of the aisles, eat those fruits and vegetables, try and maintain it. You know, we just, you know, it's just not eating a, a bowl of spinach a day. You really got to get serious about it. And, and like you said, get that glycemic index down, get, you know, get that, you know, what's, you know, when we talk about exercise, it's to, you know, burn off some of that, that sugar, lose some of those fat cells, you know, uh, it, it all adds up a little bit here, a little fat loss here, a little exercise here, a little extra nutrition, a little supplements, not processed food. And all of a sudden, wow, now you got yourself, you know, a less inflamed body, a less inflamed eye. And, you know, if you give the body good nutrition, it will heal itself. Yeah, and unfortunately, the USDA checks Americans nutrition every 10 years or so. And about 92% of us are deficient in at least one nutrient. So the standard American diet or the sad diet certainly needs to be improved. Yeah, and, 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 and I practice in, in the Altoona area. So it's really easy for me to always say, you know, we talk about the sad diet. I always say the sad the American diet, just like you said, the, the acronym being sad American diet. I'm able to use sad Altoona diet. So, because we're about a bunch of chicken wings and, and, uh, and, and French fries out here. So, you know, and, and potatoes and, you know, fried potatoes are not the best source to, of a vegetable. So. <laughs> you talked about uh, dark adaptation before, like moving on to other technology, just to go a little deeper into dark adaptation. How does the test work? What, how does, what's, when it's being performed, what is actually happening during that test? Yeah. So, there's two generations that are out there. So there might be you know, patients or people listening that, have, that are going to a doc that has maybe had this since you know, 2013, I think is when the first, what I call microwave box hit the, uh, hit the office. Um, literally, it's like a camera flash going off and then seeing how quickly you can adapt back to you know, a normal um, 
uh, you know, being able to see the light and dark adapting. Um, so there's that, that uh, device that's out there. And then at the end of 2019, there was this big buzz. I remember being at the Academy and, you know, I always go through and I, you know, as a lecturer, I want to know what's new and big coming out. And I remember the, the folks from Maculogic saying, oh, there's going to be a, you know, a great release and this and that, and it's going to be exciting. Well, well, yeah, tell me what's going on. Oh, no, I can't tell you. We've been sworn to secrecy. Then, yeah, why'd you bring this up? And then on January 1st, I was clicking through, I don't know, one of the social medias, LinkedIn or whatever. And I saw what the big, you know, hubbub was about is that, and I always, I always tease, you know, if, if you, if you don't like your technician, you put them into a visual field room, but if you really didn't like your technician and maybe you wanted them to leave the office, but you didn't want to fire them, maybe they would just leave. You just had them do the dark adaptation with the old uh, instrument because you had to have a dark room. If a phone went off, like a text message and it lit up the room, it could throw the test off. They had to have a whole separate room. It was really cumbersome. And then what happened in, in January of 2020, um, this, you know, the virtual reality goggles come out and literally, um, you know, it was a blessing for 2021 or for 2020 because, you know, we weren't, you know, we didn't have to like contaminate another room. We were able to bring them the, the instrument right to, to the, right to the, um, to the, to the, to the exam lane that they were in. And it made the room uh, a dark adaptation room. So you brought the device, which was a headset. The headset actually talks. It's got this onboard technician they call Thea, which I believe is the goddess of sight. And it talks to the patient, which gives it a really good, consistent, every single time, close your eyes, open your eyes, look at the light. But long drawn out sense, Carrie, it's a flash of light that goes off goes off superior, but you're seeing it inferior, right? Because everything's kind of backwards. And it's about five degrees off the, off the fovea, foveola. And what it's doing is a big flash of light, like a camera flash. And then it shines a dot in there and it just sees when the patient can recover. And they're literally dark adapting and seeing how quick. And it's off to the side because it's the rod intercept using the rod photoreceptor. So flash of light and then how quick you recover is the simplest way of putting it, but a really, um, a really advantageous uh, uh, instrument. How is it different than photo stress recovery? Yeah, um, I'm going to have to maybe lean on you on that. I know that uh, photo st stress recovery uh, was kind of talked about back in the time whenever I was graduating, it would be, you know, just shining a light in there and just seeing how quick they recover, but that's all I know. So I'd lean on you on, on, on that one. Yeah. There was an instrument for a while. It looked like a hairdryer and it would shine a really bright light into somebody in one in each eye separately. And then it would just count until the patient could see the number and uh, that would give them the photo stress uh, recovery. And uh, that was also supposedly correlating with early macular degeneration, but unfortunately that instrument isn't available anymore. Yeah, so this would be, you know, in a sense, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a much improved instrument to, to be able to do that with a little, probably a little bit more higher sensitivity and specificity, so. Let's talk about genetic testing. First, let's talk about inherited retinal disease. Yeah, um, you know, the, the quick on, you know, skinny on, um, genetic 
testing right now is, and then when I lecture, I have a couple slides in there and I have to give the slides, you know, a little kudos to, to Dr. Chris Putnam. He was the one that taught me about, you know, these, these, these genetic testing. And the, the key here with genetic testing, whether it's uh, the retinal hereditary uh, conditions or macular degeneration, is that if you do these or to do these swabs and you send it off to a lab and it comes back positive, all that tells you is you have the risk allele. And that doesn't mean that you're going to get the disease. But what it does is it just kind of says that the, the gun is kind of is kind of loaded and ready to go. And the last thing that you want to do is have something to pull the trigger. And we talked about a lot of those things that are out there that pull that trigger, Carrie. Those are those risk factors that we were talking about. You know, we were talking about the alcohol and how it depletes all the, the vitamins and minerals. We're talking about being overweight. We're talking about poor nutrition. Uh, what, you know, the blue light from sunlight, maybe even from, you know, long exposure. Those are those risk factors that if you have those risk alleles, that can pull the trigger, but not everyone that tests positive is going to, to develop the condition. It just kind of tells you that the gun is loaded. Just try not to do anything to trip that trigger. Now, how about genetic testing for macular degeneration? How yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. The same thing. It's the, you know, with those, whether it's a hereditary or, or degeneration, again, you can test for it. And that's where, you know, with, you know, I, I, you know, I, I did the ancestry, you know.com or whichever one I did and we did the genealogy and it was really, really cool. But that's where some of that genetic testing can get, you know, they can find that you have those risk alleles and then all of a sudden the patient starts getting all this information from, from all these companies, you should be doing this or doing that. Um, you know, the only thing I'd say is stay tuned um, genetic testing is going to be a part of this, but the key is whether you tested positive for a retinal dystrophy or you test positive for the risk alleles for macular degeneration, um, it doesn't mean you're going to get the condition. Those are the things that you want to then maybe at that point start just being careful, wearing those sunglasses, you know, taking and doing proper nutrition. Um, I think the confusing part is the genetic testing is, oh my gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be blind. I'm going to get on the internet, read about it, and I'm going to be getting injections in my eye, or I'm going to have geographic atrophy. It's not a yes, you're positive, and yes, that's where you're going to end up. The key is, is you, you have, again, the alleles. You don't want to do things to, to, to cause that allele to become active, to which then activates the disease. How about vita risk? If you have, uh, you do the genetic testing and you're high in complement factor H and you don't have any arms to, uh, staying away from zinc and the opposite, then zinc is okay. Uh, what do you think about those studies and uh, have you followed it? Yeah, I followed it, uh, you know, somewhat. You, you know, you probably, you know, being uh, in this industry, you probably know a little bit more than I do, but again, yes, those are, um, you know, if, if, if you have those alleles, you want to stay away from, you know, from the, from the zinc because it can cause the wet macular degeneration to occur. Um, and then obviously then there's some safer, you know, the higher zinc, um, you know, I'm kind of a proponent to use lower zinc, uh, preparations, 
Um, the 25 is what you need to have to be able to get that, um, that outcome of protection. You know, 60 was pretty high. And, you know, if you, you know, if you go and you listen and ask people, they'll say, well, it was just to get the patent. And we do know that there's a lot of uh, risk from zinc. You know, the people that were in the AREDS 1 and AREDS 2 studies, you know, there was a lot of dropout from, from those studies. And it was not due to the other, you know, vitamins in there, but due to a lot of the zinc. So zinc can be bad. And that's why they put, you know, copper in, in these formulations because copper can, you know, or zinc can deplete copper and create a copper anemia. So yes, um, you know, the, you, you know, a, a lot of a good thing can lead to some bad things. So you got to be careful with zinc that's out there. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. because the original A-Rides one was 80 milligrams of zinc and there was some, G, there, there was some uh, side effects to that. And so some of the studies that were, that were done is 25 milligrams and below, even if it's complement factor eight, seems to be okay. And anyway, we need zinc because we need zinc, you know, if we're not eating enough pumpkin seeds or uh, really dark chocolate or oysters or things that have a lot of zinc in it, we do need to take zinc because zinc uh, is very important. There's 300 enzymes in the body that, that zinc uh, is involved in uh, from, from uh, digestion to inflammation. So zinc is important, but I guess the body could only absorb about 40 milligrams of zinc. So we want to stay away from anything over 40 milligrams. It's, you know, it's like the Goldie, the little Goldilocks theory. You know, we just want the, just the right amount. So uh, I thought that was, that, those were interesting studies when they did that on, on zinc. Let's talk about macular pigment. Do you do macular pigment testing from as far as uh, MPOD? And I know you've gone to the biophotonic scanner, but talk about first the MPOD, the macular pigment test, and, this, and, and the importance of testing macular pigment and what the macular pigment is for. And then, uh, then let's go into the biophotonic scanner, but let's start with macular pigment and the importance of that, of that first. Yeah, being a speaker and, uh, you know, a lot of the companies like for you to, you know, obviously get, you know, their technology into your practice. And, and Carrie, I can tell you, I tried multiple times to make, you know, macular pigment testing successful in the practice. You know, it's a subjective test, um, you know, just hard to get that reliable testing. Is it important? Absolutely. Uh, we talked about those macular pigments, right? We've said them, I think, multiple times, but it's always good to repeat lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin. And those are kind of your first line. I talked about that inner retina, you know, blocking and acting as a sunglass and uh, capturing that blue light and then doing that free radical repair, sequestering those free radicals. So macular pigment and the highest part is in the, is of, of, of those three macular pigments that we talked about, the lutein, zeaxanthin, meso, is in the macula and any other part of the body. And that's purposely, right? Again, to protect the retina. So knowing what those macular pigments are, are extremely important uh, and, and making sure that they're at high levels to protect that retina is extremely important. You know, I was talking to Chris Putnam and we said, you know, well, you can do a, a macula biopsy to really get the true, but who's going to be biopsying their macula. And then there's all these M pods. And then there's some other instruments out there kind of OCT like, uh, but you know, they're, they're getting there and then maybe it will be a part of the OCT to be able to measure someday. Um, but I am full believer that, yes, you need to know what the macular pigments are, 
And then, you know, you can do some blood testing if you want, but then that's kind of you know, invasive and kind of a pain in the butt. So talk about this photo, this biophotonic scanner. Does it correlate with macular pigment? Are there studies? Uh, are there enough studies? Yeah, I think there's enough studies that are out there, at least enough that I put it in my practice. You know, I've, you know, seen and heard that they, I've re read a, a bunch of studies. You know, I've heard that there's over 90 studies. There was actually a paper by Arvo in 2016. They're the ones that kind of, that's the paper that kind of, kind of, you know, convinced me that they looked at it and I read their poster and they basically said that the, uh, the biophotonic scanner, which works on uh, um, Raman resonance spectroscopy, and it's using blue light that shines into your hand, really simple tech, you know, really simple, but uh, uh, an amazing technology. I hate to dumb it down, but yellow and blue make green, blue light goes into the hand, carotenoids are yellow, and the amount of blue light that comes out, it measures it. Now, I think there's, I heard that there's like $100 million of technology put into that little scanner that makes it the football size so that you can put it in your in your office but you know the going back and saying what's what what our what arvo was able to do in other studies that are out there if if the patient let's say is not taking Mackey health which is very specific for the three carotenoids that we were talking about if they're not really taking any supplementation if they scan low in their hand the studies have shown that it's equivalent to what would be found in their serum, which is then equivalent to what's found in their eye. So obviously that could be a little bit flawed if someone is, like you said, taking three MACU health, they're gonna scan a little higher on the, because uh, they are taking a carotenoid, they're gonna scan a little bit higher in the scanner, but maybe not as high as if they were kind of like fully nutritionally being treated with carotenoids, polyphenols, and the flavonoids. So the first thing is, yes, I'm convinced enough that if someone comes in and they're just kind of living and I measure them eating, you know, maybe taking a one a day from, you know, their, their, their Rite Aid store, and I scan them in their hand and they score low on the scanner, that they're going to be, there's enough tests out there that are going to be low in the serum and then low in the eye. Now, what I like about the scanner, it's almost like the hemoglobin A1C uh, for, uh, for people with diabetes because the scanner, and it's, it's really cool to hear patients, I'll say, oh, I'm gonna score your, see how you're doing with your fruits and vegetables. And it's almost, I become priest-like. I got the collar on and all of a sudden they're gonna be like, oh, it's probably not gonna score high because I had a couple of shots of whiskey last night and I had some chicken wings. I almost become, like it's, it's almost like a confessional. And I'm like, well, that's okay that you told me that. And it was really good to hear that. But this is really a 60 day biomarker. And it's actually a true biomarker. The, uh, there was a 10 year study by, the, by, by Yale University uh, that showed that this is a biomarker, not a risk factor, but a biomarker for food intake and health, your diet and, and fruits and vegetable intake. So long story short, yes, I believe that when you scan the hand, that it is a correlation to what you would find in serum and that uh, that's what you would find in the macula. And it hasn't just been proven one time, it's been proven multiple times. And really the Arvo study is the one that really convinced me, which was back in 2016. And they actually said it was equivalent or better than maybe an MPOD. 
Yeah, I think that Paul, Paul Bernstein did that uh, uh, poster. Yep. Yep. And he, you know, he's a pretty famous ophthalmologist. Yeah. Famous scientist. Age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, is the leading cause of adult vision loss in the U.S. It affects 1 in 14 over the age of 40. When caught early, there is time to take corrective action. Ask your eye doctor to test your dark adaptation speed using the Adapt DX Pro from Maculogics. Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. Let's talk about treatment. Uh, and we'll start, start with carotenoids, going back to the carotenoids and talking about outer retina. Uh, Joanna Seddon did a study and she showed that people who had a diet high in carotenoids lowered their risk of macular degeneration from uh, by about 43%. So, you know, of course we want the rainbow, but carotenoids are important. Where, what kind of vegetables and fruits do we find carotenoids? Lutein, zeaxanthin, mesozeaxanthin, not so much in the diet. Uh, we need to lutein to convert to mesozeaxanthin or we have to supplement. But if you could talk about also plasma levels, because because when they when they've done plasma levels of uh, studies and they looked at plasma levels of lutein and zeaxanthin, there's studies that show up to people with the highest amount of zeaxanthin in their plasma had a 93% decreased risk of macular degeneration, and lutein was I think somewhere like 79%. But of course, if you eat the food, it's only around 40, 43%. So that shows it's not necessarily what you eat, but it's what you absorb. So how can we absorb these uh, vegetables and these carotenoids better? And where do we find them? Well, you know, I, yeah, I, I know there's a lot of docs out there that will say, you know, there's lutein is, you know, spinach and kale and all the specific in uh, the, in the different, fruits and vegetables that have, uh, you know, zeaxanthin. And you said it's very difficult to, I think like shrimp, the, the, what makes shrimp, you know, I think pink is what makes the mesozeaxanthin, but, you know, it comes down to what I was saying about everything in moderation. So if you're trying to get lutein, trying to get zeaxanthin, then obviously, you know, you know, your, your, your green vegetables. So that's why I hear a lot of spinach and a lot of kale. I'm not a big iceberg fan, you know, that's not the best thing. It's more water. It's not that, it's not that strong with uh, lutein and zeaxanthin. So kind of those, those vegetables that are out there, kale, spinach, and then you want to move into getting all your, you know, to kind of round everything out, anything that's colorful, green, you know, green peppers or yellow peppers, red peppers, tomatoes, you know, bananas are yellow, you know, grapes are red and green. Uh, carrots are, are, are orange, you know, so you want to kind of eat that whole spectrum. And by eating that full spectrum, you'll, you'll get that. And you're right. Absorption is huge. Um, I lecture with a pharmacist and we always get this question, you know, whether it's, you know, you know, you know, omega threes, you know, are they ethyl esters or they triglycerides and, you know, supplementation, like what's the best way to, you know, what's the best supplements out there, so on and so forth. And she and I, and she's the one that taught me, she'll say, look, the best way to get, you know, uh, any carotenoid 
or any, you know, fatty acid is from the natural source. But then the natural source needs to be nutrient dense. Your body needs to be able to absorb it. And sometimes, you know, you know, there's a lot of out there with the with the gut microbiome, that can be an issue that's out there causing absorption. Um, and so you're right, you, you could be eating the right things and your body just can't absorb it, or you could be eating the right things at a low amount and your body's becoming a super absorber, but you gotta be eating the fruits and vegetables. That's the key. Again, you said it, the processed food, let's stay out of the aisles. One of our colleagues, Dr. Stu Richard, who's an OD PhD, He's the most, I believe he's the optometrist that has published the most studies. He has a very, very famous study called the last study where he uh, supplemented with 10 milligrams of lutein. This was back in 2004 and he showed that you improve macular pigment. It actually improves some of, some of the letters uh, in the group that was supplemented. Glare was better, contrast was better. But you could talk a little bit about how we can improve actually good vision by supplementing, improving glare, improving contrast, improving sensitivity to light. And even something that's a, that is very interesting to me is hitting a baseball, you know, uh, being able to see a ball better. They A lot of uh, professional baseball players supplement with uh, carotenoids, lutein, zeaxanthin, mesozeaxanthin to be able to see the ball better. Yeah, so we were all talking about kind of that structural side of, of, uh, of you know, looking at the OCT and all the bad things that can happen. But yeah, there's, you know, there's also with kind of that optical side, you know, making that macular pigment, absorbing that blue light. You know, we as optometrists, we use, you know, um, Snell and Acuity. Um, and, you know, there's big steps in there. There's contrast sensitivity that's out there. Um, and, you know, you can really, you know, someone might be, let's say 20, 30 ish in a sense, and you can give them proper macular pigments. And, you know, we talk about like refracting them with glasses, nearsighted and farsightedness when they're low on the macular pigments, those carotenoids that we're talking about, you can just improve their visual function. And most of the listeners out there are familiar with Snellen. Acuity, which is the big E and all that, if you use a different type of a, a, acuity chart, you could see a lot of shifting just by someone that might be, you know, 20 years old, you're talking about a baseball player and, uh, and, and, um, and improving their acuity to the point where they might be able to see the kind of the spin on the ball. And then they talk about temporal processing that's out there. That's more getting into the brain. And, and, you know, by the time, uh, you know, the pitcher throws the ball by the time everything processes, they have to decide. So it's really speeds up that processing part uh, and carotenoids can be a big part of that. So that's a whole other, you know, issue that, you know, you, you being, you know, an expert in this and well-versed in this area, you know, thank you for bringing that up because it's more than what we just talked about. Yeah, absolutely. And you bring that up and lutein's in the brain and, uh, and helps with cognition. We know that people on a Mediterranean diet do better with cognition. People on a Mediterranean diet have a lower risk of macular degeneration by about 40%. Uh, there, there's the hope, uh, Lisa Renzi did, has done work in this area and has shown that maybe macular pigment can be a biomarker for cognition. Is there enough lutein? Are people getting enough nutrition in their brain? Yeah, I, and, and, and 
Yeah, I agree with that. And there's a lot of studies going down with that. And one of the things I kind of want to piggyback on is, and it might've been one of your casts I was listening to, or I was reading about, you know, I'm big into nutrition now and trying to help my patients out. And we know if we give statins to some people that they start getting this dementia issue with the statins and, you know, the cholesterol is a fat, whatever that number is, our brains are 80% fat and it needs fat to run off of. And we start giving statins and depleting those, those cholesterol because it could build up and create heart attack and stroke. We get that. But you know what I, what I, what I didn't realize until maybe about six months ago is those carotenoids that we keep talking about. We all hear about, um, you know, water soluble type of vitamins. And, you know, that might be like a, like a vitamin C uh, that, that someone takes um, and you hear about the expense of urine, but these carotenoids that we keep talking about, they're fat soluble and they get attached to, uh, to the HDLs and the LDLs that are out there and they have to get into the brain. The brain uses that and I, it just takes that lutein and zeaxanthin into the brain or more importantly, the, the lutein and it allows with that cognitive function. And that's why a lot of this is connected to you know, macular degeneration, heart disease, macular degeneration, some diabetes, uh, macular degeneration, dementia, Alzheimer. You know, it's kind of funny how those are all kind of loosely uh, associated or, uh, or, or connected uh, that's out there. So yeah, um, lots of importance with that lutein and getting into the brain. And it's kind of funny, right? That brain is, is 80% fat. I mean, there, there was studies that show... Uh that if you have enough lutein, if you have enough macular pigment, you have less computer strain. And then people actually sleep better and they don't know if it's correlated or not, but it, that was something that was found in one of the studies uh, that by having enough macular pigment, we, we have more comfort when we're looking at a computer. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I mean. Um, you know, we learned a lot with these, these uh, the yellow lenses and blue blocking and seeing a lot that, that that's happening uh, out there with that. Um, you know, I am a scientist in a sense, but I'm more of a clinician. I'm more of a clinician. I like to use science. And to me, there's enough evidence there that, you know, if you have proper, you know, that. So let's just think about that. We keep talking about these, these, these macular pigments, right? Lutein, zeaxanthin. When you look at the macula and it's properly, uh, it has the proper amount, that macula is yellow looking. And, you know, yellow absorbs the blue. So, yeah, I think that just kind of going down to something as, you know, kind of, you know, maybe not scientific, but as simple as, well, the yellow absorbs the blue. Um, so that's going to be then beneficial that there's a lot of good things going to happen and someone just might sleep better and they'll have less glare. I mean, it's just another optical lens in the sense in the eye. When it's missing, it's that's not a good thing because it creates other issues. And I would say, I would believe that, you know, someone has proper supplementation that they're gonna sleep better. Yeah, I mean, if there's more yellow, the more blue is absorbed, if there's less yellow, blue causes scatter. There's gonna be more glare. People are gonna be more comfortable when they're around light. Yeah. Let's turn our attention to omega-3s. There's been a number of studies that show that if you, if you take omega-3s, you could decrease your risk of macular degeneration about 40% as well. 
what's your stance on omega-3s? What type of omega-3s do you like? Do you recommend omega-3s? Yes, uh, you know, again, it's everything in moderation. Um, to really narrow down to, you know, do I have a, a favorite omega-3? The key is yes, as long as it's in its triglyceride form. You know, I really don't want it in its, you know, I, what is it, the uh, ethyl ester form, or if I'm saying that properly, you know, I just want to make sure in a sense that it's in a, in the, tri, the, the triglyceride form is the most natural form. And when it's the most natural form, it's the most potent. And, and we just talked about all this stuff with regarding, you know, what are triglycerides? They're, you know, they're fats, they're good fats. And uh, in this case, the omega-3s, and they're going to help fight inflammation. We talked about that way long time ago. Um, and they're going to support a lot of mechanisms of everything that we talked about tonight. So absolutely omega-3s in the triglyceride form. You asked me which form the triglyceride form would be the way that I would advise people listening to this. And vitamin D, uh, there's been studies that show that having people with the highest amount of vitamin D compared to the lowest decrease the risk of macular degeneration or, or at least early drusen by about 43%. You know, we know vitamin D is an immune modulator. There's been studies that show that vitamin D is helpful with insulin sensitivity. There's in the Journal of Neurology, I believe, it showed that there's that that there's a decreased risk in, in, in possible, and possibly memory function. Talk about vitamin D, macular degeneration. You, what do you think? Yeah, um, well, my biggest right off the bat would be, you know, why are almost every day a patient will come in and my technician will be like, oh, that patient's on vitamin D. And I, the key is, is that there's scientific data out there of the things that you just mentioned of the benefits. But I think the biggest thing, the reason why um, you're seeing this is because you can measure it, right? You can measure for vitamin D and then a patient will come in and then uh, if they, or if they, you know, usually the primary care doc is measuring this and if they're found to be low, then they'll, uh, uh, then they'll supplement them. Now, my little issue or concern would be, and this is just me anecdotally is, you know, if a patient just tests low on vitamin D, they're probably low across the spectrum, but at least they're doing something. So a lot of the times when the patients come in and they're on vitamin D and I use the scanner, they still scan low. Maybe they scan higher than maybe the standard uh, Alchina or standard American diet that we were talking about, but they scan a little bit higher but it's kind of a monotherapy rather than that kind of A, B, C, D through K, essential minerals and vitamins, and then getting into the polyphenols, flavonoids, and carotenoids that are out there. But yeah, I mean, at least we're moving in the right direction, right? There's a big hole in healthcare. We kind of wait for end stage, but we want... Um, we want these, you know, we, we, we're, I'm glad that primary care docs and traditional medicine is moving into maybe more nutrient side of it. So it's a good start. So, but I, but, but it, it's a needed because there's scientific data out there that vitamin D uh, if low is, can create, you know, negative things that happen to the body. A lot of diseases run together like cardiovascular disease, uh, Alzheimer's, macular degeneration, 
if the body has a methylation problem and it doesn't methylate properly and their homocysteine is high, there have been studies to show that B complex, B vitamins, B6, B12, and methylfolate can be helpful and decrease the risk by about 40 about 40 percent. Uh, is that something that you have a test for? Um, I don't have a test in my office, so I have to lean on you where you, where you were in a sense going with that one. So. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes you know we do labs, and if we see the homocysteine's high, see reactive protein is high, we know that they're increased risk for Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, and anything with inflammation such as macular degeneration. In fact, Joanna said in at one time wanted to put together like a little lab test, labs for macular degeneration, which would include that. I don't think it's ever happened, but it's interesting because if someone does have high homocysteine, then they, then B, then B, the, those three, but it's good to put them on a total B complex will decrease the risk. Yeah, now, there are some, there are some people that have some, you know, younger patients that get like a vein occlusion and it could be due to homo, uh, homocysteine levels being high. Um, and I've seen the B used on that, but that was really the, you know, that's why I love doing this and I don't claim to be a know-it-all, you know, that link with macular degeneration certainly sounds reasonable. Yes, I've seen it as well, you know, patients that have little vein occlusions and working them up and it was from high homocysteine. I've also seen it from high LP little a, high elevated insulin to two hour insulin. So there's a number of reasons that's one of the reasons I started doing labs myself is because I'd see little hemorrhages, I'd send them out and I always come back, there was nothing wrong. Well, there's a thousand biomarkers that you could do. So you kind of have to pick the right ones. Right. So yeah. let's, let's end this with uh, back to how do we treat neovascular membranes with anti-VEGF uh, injections? Talk about what a neovascular membrane is, which I think you've already talked about it, but just to review it, and what are anti-VEGF uh, medications? Where are we going with these injections? And are there side effects? What are the side effects? What have you seen? Yeah, so, you know, the, to the first part of your question, we'll kind of highlight, you know, what a cordial neovascular membrane is. And it's really the, the we talked about that RPE breaking down. There's, there's a signaling process going on. The body tries to heal itself. It tries to heal itself by growing a new blood vessel. Now the drawback to those new blood vessels, it sounds like a great idea. They're just poorly constructed. They're not like the blood vessels that we were born with. They're poorly constructed. They like to bleed uh, really easy. Um, so the good news about these poorly constructed blood vessels is that they have a certain uh, marker on them that not the normal blood vessels have. So that allowed the scientists to go in and target that with what you were saying, these anti-vasoendothelial growth factor, these anti-VEGF injections, which are a biologic. And I do a lecture on biologics and biologics are different than uh, different medications. So, you know, like aspirin is a chemical structure and they're really, really tiny. You know, biologics are huge. That's why a lot of times they need to be infused, like Humira is a biologic. You hear a lot of these treatments for psoriatic arthritis, they're biologics. Steroids, you know, you, you kind of hear that a lot. That suppresses the whole immune system. Biologics are super, super targeted. They just target one little specific, and that's that. Remember, I told you there's a difference between a regular blood vessel and a cordial neovascular membrane. It has a marker 
smart people out there figured it out that if I can go in and just target that, I won't kill the normal blood vessels, but I will kill the bad blood vessels. So, you know, they started off by, you know, uh, biologics that needed to be injected maybe every few weeks. And you ask, you know, where is it going? They're trying to develop these, these uh, anti-VEGF, these biologics that maybe can last a lot longer, maybe three to four months, and that's where they're going. And But biologics are just there, you know, the, a steroid is kind of like an atomic bomb going off, but a biologic is like a guided missile and just going in and just hitting very targeted tissues. And that's why they're extremely important, you know, better than going and burning out the laser, like what I grew up on or what I was cutting my teeth on getting into optometry school. Yes, you have this coronavascular membrane. And yes, you're about 2060 right now. I'm going to burn a hole in your retina to kill that. It's going to take you to see the big E, but trust me, it'd be a lot worse. That was a little tough to sell back then. I'm glad the biologics or these anti-VEGFs are out because you can at least, you know, maybe the patient's on 40, 80 injections, but it's killing that bad weed and maintaining and keeping the patient's vision. And how long, how often do they have to have one of these injections? Yeah, it all depends on, uh, you know, how many cracks we talked about in that RPE. Um, they have different protocols out there, treat, you know, some are, you know, three, three injections in a short period of time, meaning weeks, every three to four weeks. And then they get to a treat and then extend, they get them out to 10 weeks or 12 or 11 weeks or 12 weeks. Um, everyone's a little bit different because the amount of damage and signaling that's out there. But, you know, I would say probably the longest patients that if you want to say that have active or maintenance, they're probably getting injections once they get out to that treat and extend. They're probably getting injections about every eight to 11 to 12 weeks, um, which is, you know, that, that's a lot of injections throughout the course of the year. And you mentioned about side effects, you know, the biggest, you know, risk that would be would be you're sticking a needle into the eye um, and, you know, the risk would be, you know, an infection into the eye. Maybe if the technique isn't right, a, a retinal detachment, um, you know, some floaters, some increased pressure, some pain in the eye, that, you know, whenever they're doing it. Um, but, uh, you know, not a fun procedure, but uh, at least it's a, it's a sight-saving procedure. Every patient wants to know, you're injecting a needle in my eye. Does that hurt? Yeah, everyone wants to say that, right? Wants to ask, yeah. Um, you know, the good news is they've got the techniques out there that uh, that they can numb that eye pretty good and uh, it, they don't feel it. So the, the, those needles are tiny um, and then they numb the eye pretty good. You know, my father-in-law, he's on his, you know, 83rd injection. Um, you know, he's a tough guy, but when it comes to his eye, he's probably the, you know, the, the, the biggest baby out there. But you know, he's able to get it done because it saves his vision. So some, when people have cardiovascular disease, sometimes they'll make collaterals, collaterals that'll actually protect the heart. The, the body will produce a natural bypass around the, around the plaque. Will these injections affect those collaterals that the, for those type of people that are making these collaterals, are they very similar to the to these weak blood vessels that are in the eye where those people are at risk? Um, you know, I'm familiar with collaterals in the eye that are formed from vein occlusions. Um, when people get a vein occlusion, a collateral in the eye is, is, a, is a, it's just a smaller blood vessel that's already existing. It just becomes 
opened and trying to bypass. So I always tell the patient, you know, it's kind of like, you know, they put a highway in by me. So it, I have old 22 and new 22. I can always tell when there's an accident on new 22 because old 22 and they're bypassing everyone. Um, and so those are the collaterals. Um, I know of neovascularization and macular degeneration. Um, I'm unfamiliar with, you know, Carrie, I'm going to have to use your help here. I'm unfamiliar with collaterals and the, the VEGFs uh, being affected there um, because they're normal blood vessels that are opening up. So I would say that the collaterals in those retinal conditions would, in a sense, be safe because they're not being targeted. Well, I appreciate that. I want to thank Dr. Greg Caldwell for joining me today. If somebody wants to find out more about you, how could they do? Yeah, um, pretty easy. Um, my email address is grubod. So my nickname is Grub. So G-R-U-B as an optometrist, O-D. So grubod at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, I'm not opposed to anyone texting me or giving me a phone call. So 814-931-2030. I want to thank Dr. Caldwell for joining me today. He's a wealth of information and he's one of my favorite lecturers. If you're in the vision community and you get the chance to see Dr. Caldwell lecture, go see him lecture. He's fantastic. Dr. Caldwell, thank you for joining me today. You know, Carrie, this is, you know, you, you asked me to do this and it's been the highlight of, of, of the last week or so that you've asked me. It's truly an honor and a pleasure. And I would not uh, be a, a good guest if I didn't thank you for inviting me, but then thank you for everything that you're doing out there, bringing the awareness to, to, to patient care, bringing the, uh, the technology in, in multiple forms uh, for, for patient care and, and, and for community. So thank you for all you do. Well, thank you, Greg. And this is Dr. Kerry Gelb for the Open Your Eyes podcast. Everybody, please stay well. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.